Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, I am Tom Gardner. I'm one of the ruling elders here uh, at Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. I see some faces I haven't seen before. Um, Dr. Silverail, our head pastor, is on vacation. He should be back um, today, I think, later today, um, and he'll be back in the pulpit next Sunday. Our associate pastor, Frank Wong, is on sabbatical, so uh, if this is your first time here, make sure you come back and and see the real deal um, in our pastors. But uh, uh, I'm very thankful to be up here today to be able to bring the message to you. To do that, I might actually need my message. Let me bring that up here. Uh, I do want to say I'm very touched how many of you moved up just to be closer to me today for this sermon, so I appreciate that. Um, And good news, uh, on Monday, my manuscript was about three pages longer So I've cut it down, which means we'll get out of here sooner, into the AC of your cars, your homes. So uh, that's a blessing for you, I think. Um, The title of today's message is Prayer for Our Forgiveness. Uh, The text for today is Psalm 130, which we actually already read just a little bit ago. This is the 11th sermon in our series, Summer in the Psalms, a series on prayer. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Psalm 130 and follow along as I read it. It's also on the screen behind me. And it's in your bulletins that you can find online. This is Psalm 130, verses 1 through 8. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a child, I used to love going to a lake or pond in the summer. It didn't matter which lake or pond it was, as long as I could go swimming in it. And one of the ways I would entertain myself would be to try to see if I could sink down all the way and touch the bottom. Any of you ever do that as a kid or even as an adult? There was a sense of danger in it, maybe, that only a child could love. You didn't know what was down there. In my imagination, as a child, it could be as boring as a tangled tree branch or vine, or it could be as horrifically exciting as some sea creature, lost and forgotten that it found its way out of the primeval darkness of the bottom of the pond, waiting to feed. Maybe there was some abandoned car from a bank robbery with skeletons in it, like you might see in the movies or television. Whatever was down there, you could get your foot caught in it, or worse, whatever is down there might try to grab your foot and hold you down there. With these delightfully thrilling and yet implausible dangers in my mind, I would push myself down, feet first, looking towards the surface as I went. Very quickly, the yellow-green light filtering through the surface would begin to dim And I would noticeably feel the change in temperature as I moved farther from the surface. As I went down and my lungs began to feel heavy, my courage would start to fail. And I would think to myself, surely I am almost 
at the bottom. If I can just go a little bit longer, my feet will sink into the mud and then I will swim back up. As the dark light turned to black and the darkness engulfed me, however, as the small warmth from the sun far above me turned to a chilly cold, the pond began to seem more like a watery grave than a swimming hole. I would lose my courage and swim back up to the surface as fast as I could, certain that those gooey monster hands were just inches from grabbing my feet and about to pull me back down. We come to our first point in the sermon outline today, which is the depths of the psalmist's sin, the depths of the psalmist's sin, verses 1 and 2. Here in Psalm 130, the psalmist is writing for what he calls the depths. The New Living Translation says it is the depths of despair. Our last song, Martin Luther, our last song today, a little bit later, Martin Luther took Psalm 130 and he, he called this the depths of woe. When the psalmist says he is in the depths of despair, it is almost like he has sunk to the bottom of some lake and the cold, dark grip of sin has held him there so he can't rise back up. Except this is not a child's game for the psalmist like it was for me. It is not his overactive and somewhat morbid imagination. In the depths, his sin is dark and it is deathly cold. And he doesn't have the strength to swim back up out of it. You see, the nature of sin is that it separates us from one another, but most importantly, it separates us from God. It is like death in this sense. Scripture is clear that the wages of sin is death. Whether it is a physical death or a spiritual death, there is separation involved. A question we might ask ourselves is, does our sin feel like death to us? That's a question I'm going to come back to later, though, in this sermon. I think for the psalmist, his sin, at least in this instance, felt something like death to him. He is feeling the separation from God, and it has driven him to the depths of despair. There is a soul anguished that has pushed him deep under the surface, and he is drowning in the pain of it. The depth of his sin was too heavy for him to bear. He has grown weary, and he has sunk below the waves. Sin separates us from God. It always has. Remember Adam and Eve when they had sinned that first sin. They tried to hide themselves in the garden. Where before they had had intimacy with God and with each other. Now they were hiding in fear and guilt. They were separated from God. Remember Jonah who disobeyed God and then foolishly set sail on a ship. Thinking that he could separate himself from the sight and knowledge of God. He ended up knowing the depths of his sin, both metaphorically and literally as he was engulfed in the belly of the whale. Sin separates us from God. Of course, instead of moving farther away from God, further into danger, swimming deeper into the depths or into the belly of the whale of our own depravity, what we should do is turn and move towards God. We often do the opposite, however. Have you seen that video of the sheep that is stuck headfirst in a tight ravine? It's a few years old now, but in this video, the sheep is pinned in so that it can't move, and somebody is trying to pull it back out using its hind legs. In the video, you feel a sense of relief as the sheep is pulled out and is set back safely on the ground. 
Of course, as soon as the sheep has been freed from the walls of the ravine, it runs off and immediately jumps back in head first, just as stuck and helpless as it was before. It's a funny little video, but what is not funny is that we so often, like that sheep, get stuck in our sins and repeatedly can't get out of them. In our sins, we often forget what the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, I think I'm saying that correctly, wrote in his book, The Bruised Reed. In this book, he famously wrote that there is, no mercy, uh, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Now, the author of the psalm hadn't read Richard Sibbs, of course, and he had never watched a funny video about sheep. But he did know God and his mercy. The psalmist looks to the surface, and he says here in verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Burdened to the point of despair by the weight of his sin, he cries out to God to hear him. When you are on the bottom of the lake, or even that vast tumultuous ocean of your sin, when you have jumped headlong into the ravines of your sin and cannot remove yourself and are crying out for help, when it seems like no one can hear you, brothers and sisters, God can hear you. There's often when we are at the very depths of our despair, engulfed in the cold darkness of whatever sin we have allowed to come between us and God, that we need to remember that God is listening. I think of the parable of the prodigal son. We all know the story very well. The one son takes his inheritance early and leaves his father only to lose all he had through a hedonistic lifestyle. Realizing that even his father's servants had food and shelter, he decides to go back home and throw himself on even the smallest of mercy from his father. Of course, the father sees his son coming from far off and rejoices that his son has returned and brings out the best that he has to celebrate in his son's honor. Or what about the one sheep out of a hundred that goes missing and the shepherd who risks his life to save that one wayward sheep. Jesus said that there was more rejoicing in heaven for the one sinner that repented for the 99 that did not. Even from the depths of our sin, God is near and attentive to our voice and our pleas for mercy. The psalmist knew this. Even though he had sinned against God, even though he felt sin's separation pulling him farther down from the light of the surface, he remembered that God was listening, and so he pleaded with God to be attentive to his voice and to his pleas for mercy. This is where, in those cold, dark depths, the psalmist found his hope. Which brings us to our second point today, the hope of the psalmist's soul. Verses 3 through 6, the hope of the psalmist's soul. Having just explored the depths of the psalmist's sin, we now turn to the hope of his soul. From his depths of despair, the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. In the first two verses of the psalm, the author has expressed the depths of his despair. He has almost succumbed to the weight of his sin, but in his trials, he called out to the Lord 
And now he expresses the reason for the hope that he has. He starts out by saying, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now I have to admit that until I started preparing for this message, I kind of casually read that verse and interpreted it to say that God did not mark iniquities. Maybe you have done that too. It'd be nice in a way if that is what it says, because that is really what we would like for it to say, that God does not mark iniquities. But that is not what it says. It says, if you should mark iniquities, not that he doesn't or that he won't. This is what is known uh, for you grammarians out there as a conditional clause. Specifically, it's an open future condition, meaning that it might or it might not happen. God might mark iniquities or he might not. It would be very comforting if the psalmist had said in the psalm, Lord, I know that you don't mark iniquities. But he didn't say that. And scripture is very clear that God does in fact mark them. From mankind's first sin in the garden throughout biblical history, God has marked down the iniquity of man and he has even told him that he was doing so. Now I'm fully aware of passages in scripture that say quite clearly that for those who know the Lord, God will not keep a record of iniquities. Passages like Jeremiah 31, verse 34, which was read to you last week, actually, as your assurance of pardon. In that verse, God gives the great promise that I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I can think of Acts 3.19, where Peter is telling the crowd after Pentecost to repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. We sang about that in one of our songs earlier. These passages are absolutely true, at least for those who by faith know Jesus as their Savior. We will talk more about this concept of sin being blotted out a bit later, but what about those who didn't or don't by faith know Jesus? For those people, Scripture is clear that God does, in fact, keep a record of man's iniquities. We could spend all morning going through example after example of this, but a few will suffice to show what I mean. Genesis 6.5 tells us that in the days of Noah, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, and that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God reveals himself to Noah, the only righteous man alive at the time. And God said to him in verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God saw the wickedness of man. He didn't look the other way or pretend that it didn't happen. He saw, he marked, and he judged. Another example comes from the record of the divided kingdom. Upon King Solomon's death, Israel was divided in two between the northern and the southern kingdoms. In the book of 2 Kings, one is constantly reading about one king succeeding another, one king after another, rising and falling like the dominoes of history. Throughout the whole narrative, you constantly read descriptions of these kings where it says something like, and king, fill in the blank with the name, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not turn aside from the sins of his father, continuing in all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. With only a few exceptions, these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. And though he was patient with his people, he didn't forget or ignore their sins. You'll remember that Israel and Judah went into exile because of their sins. 2 Kings 17 gives an exhaustive list of the reasons why the people of Israel and Judah were carried off 
into captivity. Chapter 17, verses 7 through 14 says the following. It's a long list. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been and who did not believe in the Lord their God. If that isn't a record of wrongs, then I don't know what a record of wrongs sounds like. If God doesn't mark iniquity, then why do we still have this list of Israel's iniquity preserved for us by the Holy Spirit thousands of years after it happened? When the psalmist says in verse 3, if you should mark iniquities, there's a real sense that God could in fact do so. And if God were to do so, the psalmist asked, who could stand? When the all-knowing and all-powerful God of the universe is before you with the record of your sins on your own, you cannot stand. You can fall down in fear like Isaiah who in a vision saw the Lord of hosts and said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and fell to the ground. Another option available to you is to fall down and die like Uzzah when he tried to study the Ark of the Covenant as it was being transported back to the Israelites. You can do those things, but you certainly won't be able to stand. Speaking of a day, future day of judgment, when the record of each man's iniquities will be put before them, the prophet Malachi asked, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears. The psalmist asked the same thing in verse 3 of this psalm. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? How fearful it is and will be for those whose iniquities God does indeed mark. Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees, told them that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. In his commentaries on the Psalms, James Montgomery Boyce said of these verses that we need to recover a sense of sin. We need to discover how desperate our condition is apart, and that's the key word, apart from God. We need to know that God's wrath is not an outmoded theological construct, but a terrible and impending reality. We need to come out of our sad fantasy world and begin to tremble before the awesome holiness of our almighty judge. That is fearful. 
For the psalmist, however, longing to get back to the fellowship he had with God before his sin, it is not the very real fear of God's judgment that occupies his thoughts in the depths of his despair. While it is true that God didn't turn a blind eye to the psalmist's sin, what occupies his thoughts is what he says in verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He didn't rest in some misplaced notion that God wouldn't see or wouldn't care about his sin, but rather that God's mercy and forgiveness was greater than his sin. And he makes the interesting statement that with God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That seems strange, doesn't it? Our God is a forgiving God that he may be feared. It would make more sense to me that God would be feared if he didn't forgive our sins. God is the definition in and of himself of perfect holiness and perfect justice. He would have absolutely remained both perfectly holy and perfectly just if instead of forgiving the psalmist when he cried out to him, he had destroyed him instead, like he did in the days of Noah. You would think that prospect, the righteous judgment of God, would instill a sense of fear of God. Instead, he writes that is the fact that God forgives that engenders fear. Why would this be? It's a simple answer, but I think it is because God is God and we are not. We know how we react to being wronged. We are very good at always knowing the judgment that other people deserve. Those standards might not hold for true for us, but for the other guy, we become the judge, the jury, and the chief executioner pretty quickly. And so when God extends to the sinner the hand of grace to pull them out of the depths of despair rather than the hand and the rod of judgment to beat them back down, we are in fearful awe of that. I think it is often the goodness of God that creates a holy fear as much as the judgment of God. There's a beautiful passage in Jeremiah where God is speaking about the future restoration of Israel and Judah And through his prophet, he says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. I said just a moment ago that God is God and we are not. God tells us through Isaiah that his thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are his ways our ways. The Apostle Paul echoes this when he exclaims, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unknowable his ways. For the author of Psalm 130, it is not the fact that God could judge his iniquities, and leave him in the depths of despair that occupies his thoughts. It is the fearful prospect that God is a forgiving God. It is this idea, the forgiveness of God, promised by God in his word, which gives the psalmist a fearful hope. We should rejoice in God's forgiveness. But with the psalmist, look with fearful wonder and ask ourselves, who is this God that would do that? 
for me, a sinner. In verses 5 and 6, the psalmist writes, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The Spanish monk, known as John of the Cross, called our soul's anguish the dark night of the soul. How many of us, when we experience such a dark night, are content to be patient and wait for the Lord? The word wait is an offensive word in many of our 21st century lives. Many of us, not all of us, but many of us live in a world of instant gratification. We live in a world where if our download speed is less than 200 megabytes per second, our whole day is ruined. If our Starbucks isn't ready when we get to the front of the order ahead line, chances are all our Facebook friends will hear about it. We hold that same day delivery as a natural born right. We are often impatiently checking our Amazon order tracking status to see when our new toys will arrive. We long for the presence of God, but like for him to show himself on our time. And when God doesn't show himself on our timetable, it is tempting to assume that the problem isn't with us, but with him. This is not the case for the psalmist. In these verses, he says that his soul waits for the Lord. It is a patient waiting, not one which is given to doubt, but rather an assurance that God and his forgiveness will be there. In the dark night of his soul, he says that he waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. This phrase is notable in several ways. For one, the psalmist says it twice. He wants us to really think about these watchmen standing guard on the last watch of the night, something we would refer to as the graveyard shift. Think of them up on the walls of Jerusalem, peering into the darkness, trying to stay vigilant, waiting for the morning that they hope will come. During my senior year at Liberty University, I worked as a campus security guard. I know I look really intimidating, right? Um, Due to my daytime class schedule, I'd always work the graveyard shift. This took place from 11 o'clock p.m. until 7 o'clock a.m. Even though as a campus security guard, I was often assigned to work off campus in downtown Lynchburg. My job was to guard the old Thomas Road Baptist Church and the K-12 private Christian school that was attached to it. Now, you would think that for an introvert, such as myself, this would be the dream job. Nothing to do but walk around by myself, all alone for eight hours every other night. To be honest, it was a very lonely and creepy job. Each night that I worked, armed only with my walkie-talkie, a can of pepper spray, and a nightstick that I tripped over more than anything else, I would make my rounds all alone through an empty megachurch and the dark hallways and classrooms of the Christian school. I spoke earlier about how I had an active imagination as a young child as I was diving down into the depths of the pond. Well, let me tell you, as a young 20-something, I also had a fairly active imagination. As I made my rounds down the darkened quarters of those empty buildings, dark classrooms seeming to watch me around every corner, every single horror movie I had ever watched in my pre-Jesus life crept unbidden to my mind. Of 
course, the buildings are fairly old buildings, and like most old buildings, they made noises. Noises in a building during the day with people in them are the most natural things in the world. At night, though, when you are supposed to be all by yourself, noises are not what you want to hear. Your mind plays tricks on you in many different ways. Wasn't that classroom door I just passed that is now open, wasn't that closed the last time I walked by it? Is that knocking sound I hear on the HVAC system? Or or is that somebody knocking on the walls? Are those creaking stairs the sound of the 40-year-old building settling in? Or is it the weight of someone coming down the stairs around the next corner? Are those my footfalls I keep hearing echoing behind me? Is there, or is there somewhere, someone here in the dark following me? It's creepy, right? The 11 p.m. hour wasn't so bad. The midnight hour wasn't so bad. At midnight, I could still remember what the daytime was like. But by the 3 a.m. or the 4 a.m. walkabout, all I wanted more than anything else was to those first slim slivers of daylight in the night sky. I was the watchman waiting for the morning. So I understand what the psalmist is saying here. For the watchman on the ramparts of the walls of Jerusalem with nothing but the unaided eye to detect the dangers of an approaching enemy, enemies who are much more real and embodied than the phantoms of my security guard imagination, the deliverance of the morning light was certainly even more welcome. The psalmist tells us that he is waiting for God with this same sort of longing, this same intensity. That night of his despair, with all of its dangers, is very real, but he is assured that the morning will come. He just has to wait with faith that God will be there. He he waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. In the dark nights of our souls, which we all go through, we may not always see the immediate presence of God, but we can know that he is there. His ways may not be our ways, but his timing is perfectly his timing. If you are waiting for the Lord like watchmen for the morning, the good news is that like the morning, God will certainly come. Sometimes we must wait patiently, however like watchmen for the morning. For the psalmist, deep in the depths of his despair, his hope is in the forgiveness of God, and he waits for it like the surety of the new morning, which breaks through even the darkest of nights. This hope, however, is not just for him. Assured of his own forgiveness, he now turns his thoughts to the people of Israel. This is our third point today. Prayer for the psalmist people, verses 7 through 8. The psalmist writes in these verses, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It is striking to me that the psalmist, despite all that he is personally going through, can give thought to others in what is a prayer for his people. This speaks certainly to the confidence that he has in the forgiveness that God could offer, and it was not just for him, but also for all those who would put their trust in him. 
The psalmist confidently exhorts Israel to put their hope in the Lord. And he can do this because as he says, with the Lord there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. The word for steadfast love in verse 7 is the Hebrew word hesed, which we have encountered already in our sermon series this summer. It's a word used close to 250 times in the Old Testament, with more than half of those occurrences in the Psalms alone. It is a difficult word to translate into English because it encompasses more than just a definition. It is in itself part of a larger concept of who God is. Biblical scholar Daryl Bach writes that Hesed is wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. It is a word that is aptly characteristic of what I said earlier when I said that God is God and we are not. It is because of this said love of God, the steadfast, eternal, beyond the call of duty love that God has, that the psalmist tells Israel that they can have a certain hope in God's forgiveness. And what is more, that with him is plentiful redemption. You see, the psalmist knew that not only was God a God who forgives a person's first, second, and third strikes, but he was a redeeming God. God's word in which the psalmist put his trust told of a future, eternal, unending redemption for Israel. Even though the psalmist did not see clearly what that redemption would look like, even though he could not put his fingers into the wounds of Jesus' side or hands like Thomas could, still, like Abraham before him, the author of Psalm 130, believed by faith in the promised future redemption that would, in fact, come not just for himself, but for the true Israel as well. All who by faith put their trust in the Lord, looking into the bright light of the morning that he waited for like watchmen do. He could see the details, I'm sorry, he couldn't see the details of the Redeemer's face, but he could see in shadow form that God's word was true and that there was redemption in the Lord. The promised Messiah would come. He could say without doubt or hesitation that God would redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I want to go back to a question I asked at the beginning of this sermon. We had been talking about how sin was a lot like death, that it separates us from those we love. Our sins can have the effect of isolating us from others, and it creates an uncrossable wedge for us in our relationship with God. For the psalmist, it was a separation that brought him into the depths of despair. I asked the question, does our sin feel like death to us? Do we, like the psalmist, feel the full weight of our sin, and does it at times drive us to those same depths? Though we might not like it, nobody likes to be in the depths. But it is actually a good thing to recognize just how serious sin is and the devastating effects it can have in your life. There are many, many people who do not take sin seriously enough, who if they think about sin at all, think that the wages of sin are inconvenience not death. Certainly those who do not claim the name of Christ often do not seem to be burdened at all by the things they do which others might call sin. These people go about their lives living as if there is no standard or law, especially in the area of moral behavior, 
other than what they have created for themselves. Their lives are very self-focused, and what feels good to them or is most expedient for them is all that matters. Their moral actions become a kind of cost-to-benefit analysis. Right and wrong become relative and are usually determined by what is most expedient for them during the moment. What seems right for me, this I will do, they seem to say. This approach to life, however, where a person behaves as if there were no holy and righteous God, no moral force outside of themselves setting the standard for right and wrong, is an approach sometimes adopted even by those who claim to be Christians. People who you see in the church on Sunday, maybe, but who from Monday through Saturday live life on their own terms. People who know that the bad things they do are wrong, perhaps, but don't really stop to consider the fuller gravity of what they're doing and who either don't feel that conviction by the Holy Spirit to repent or if they do feel it, ignore it until it goes away. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sins, that is a blessing. If a person never feels the prodding of the Holy Spirit, then that, on the other hand, is a real problem. If the word of God doesn't convict a person and cause them, like this psalmist or like the assembled crowd before Peter at Pentecost, that crowd upon hearing God's word, it was said, were cut to the heart and cried out, what shall we do? If unlike those people, the word of God and the spirit of God doesn't cause a person to fall before God rather than trying to stand in their own strength before God then that is a big problem. If that is any of us today, then we have a big problem. We need to feel the conviction from the Spirit, which leads us to repentance. And then we need to repent. As the Apostle Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We need to be led by His Spirit, like this psalmist was. But if, on the other hand, when the Word of God and the Spirit of God confront you with your sins, if you feel yourself in the depths of despair over your sins and are brought to repentance, as the psalmist was, then the good news, brothers and sisters, is that you do not need to stay in those depths. The psalmist has a good word for you when he tells you that from those depths you can cry out to God and He will hear your pleas for mercy. The psalmist, looking ahead, through the years of time and seeing that the Lord was steadfast with that said love and plentiful redemption, he saw that through the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven. We talked earlier about how for those who do not know the Lord, the iniquities of their life have been marked down. It is a terrible record that upon the day of judgment will be presented before God and will be the irrefutable evidence against those who do not know the Lord. We're told that the chaff will be separated from the wheat into a fire that rages eternally. For those who know Jesus, however, those beautiful promises I read earlier hold true. Again, Jeremiah 31, 34 says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. If you know the Lord, Acts 3.19, you'll remember, speaks of the sins of those who repent being blotted out, no longer there. Here are the words of Psalm 103. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has he taken our sins from us. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2, I'm sorry, 5:21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, meaning Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is good news. In verse 8, the psalmist says confidently that God will redeem Israel. If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you are part of that promised redemption. You are part of the true Israel. The the psalmist's hope for forgiveness is your hope for forgiveness. The Apostle Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 that having died for our sins, God raised Jesus up from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. If God raised Jesus, who knew no sin himself, up from the depths of his despair, then you can have full assurance that you have also been raised from the depths of your despair. Though the wages of sin are death, The gift of God is eternal life. He has heard our pleas for mercy and he has pulled us from the depths of our despair. Even now, he stands ready to do so. There's a true story about a father and a son during one of the worst earthquakes of the 20th century. It happened in 1989 in Armenia. Some people might even remember this. The earthquake lasted for only four minutes, but it killed 30,000 people. In his book, When Christ Comes, Max Lucado, or Lucado, I'm not sure, recounts a true story that came after that horrific earthquake. Moments after the deadly tremors ceased, a father raced to an elementary school to save his son. When he arrived, he saw that the building had been leveled. Looking at the mass of stones and rubble, he remembered a promise he had made to his child. And I think we've made this to our children before, those of us who have them. No matter what happens, I'll always be there for you. Driven by his own promise, the father found the area closest to his son's classroom and began to pull back the rocks. Other parents arrived and began sobbing for their children. It's too late, they told the man. You know they are dead. You can't help. Even a police officer encouraged him to give up his task. But the father refused for eight hours, then 16, then 32. 36 hours he dug. His hands were raw and his energy was gone, but he refused to quit. Finally, after 38 wrenching hours, he pulled back a boulder and heard his son's voice. He called his boy's name, Armand. Arman, and a voice answered him, Dad, it's me. Then the boy added these priceless words. I told the other kids not to worry. I told them if you were alive, you'd save me. And when you saved me, they'd be saved too. Because you promised, no matter what, I'll always be there for you. When the depths of despair overtake you, pulling you deeper under the waters. Remember that your heavenly Father has shown us in his Son Jesus that he will always be there for us too. We need to pray about that, as Dr. Dave would say. Let us do so. Heavenly Father, 
we cry out to you because in our sins, we have sunk below the waves. We struggle sometimes just to lift our heads and call out to you. Hear our cries for mercy, Lord. Help us in our fear. Help us in our weakness and pull us up out of the depths of our despair with your strong arms of grace. We thank you that in Jesus we have plentiful redemption. May we continue to come to you in repentance and be in fearful awe of your goodness all the days of our lives until that blessed day when standing before you we see the truth that our iniquities have been washed away paid for by our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who reigns eternally with you in heaven. And for this, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.